All right. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Jeff, I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm recovering a little bit from our meeting yesterday. Uh, it was great to have so many people come out and um, you know, it was just, it's exciting to see this, uh, little, little momentum that we're getting going. Um, it reminds me of yeast, uh, especially sourdough. And my son is doing this science project with my, my father-in-law where they're, they did a control where there's nothing in a jar of water. And then they did a experiment where they put a piece of grass in a jar of water. And then they see what kind of like mm. organisms grow. And so my father-in-law is a pathologist. And so he showed me the slides and stuff. And he's like, oh, this is the yeast right here. And I, all I could think of was like, oh, it's like yeast, like like sourdough, like you you get an idea going and then you try to mix it with flour and then you can know you share your sourdough starter and stuff. And um, so one of the great things about our meeting yesterday was that we're, we're actually trying to share it with other candidates. And we had a couple, we had one candidate come yesterday, uh, a Mr. Ruffalo, if that's correctly. Um, so I'd like to yes. welcome you, Robert. Thank you so much for coming to our show tonight. It's my pleasure to be here. It was great to, to actually spend some time with you and the rest of the group yesterday and listen to some of the questions and the issues and the things that they are greatly concerned with. And it was a pleasure to share that with you. So, Robert, we had, uh, we had the opportunity, obviously, to sit down and talk on Thursday as well. And I was really interested in your personal story, where you came from and, uh, you know, uh, your family you were telling me about. Um, I was kind of I was kind of just riffing about how it's really difficult to have kids, right? And to raise them. And you mentioned that yours are out of yep. the house. And I'm like, how did you do it? And you were like, my wife, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the key component in most families uh, actually is uh, the, the mother and the wife, because she actually does the majority of the, the heavy lifting, you know, guidance in the home. And uh, most, most traditional relationships, you know, men are out working. Sometimes, you know, you have both family members, both the husband and the wife, father, and mother are working and it's a tough situation. But, you know, in the end, the nurturing and the home building generally is uh, largely conducted by uh, the wife. So uh, I've got two great younger daughters. Uh, one is uh, just finishing an internship in psychology. Probably good in my family to have some psychologists around. I don't know. Uh, but she's working in a school, young school with children, and uh, one particular autistic child that she's working with. And she's had a tremendous, tremendous impact on this kid. And uh, the kid actually is drawing art and things to her. And now is starting to reject some of the other teachers because of, of her methodologies. She reaches out to people, wraps her arms around them, either figuratively or psychologically, and really um, makes a tremendous connection with people. I think that's important. The, uh, my younger child is uh, studying to be a veterinary doctor. Originally, she was interested in history and linguistics, uh, but there was something in the, uh, about animals and in animal science that really touched her, and she was afraid. And I said, look, just go take a class and see how it goes. What's the worst thing that can happen? And she says, okay, Papa, I'll go try. So the next photo I get, and she's got, you know, the typical uh, nice female fingernails that I pay for. A big surprise. Okay. And she's like, uh, has, has, she's massaging the nose of a uh, cow. And that's the film I got. So from then on, she did veterinary science and uh, has been doing quite well. I'm very proud of her. But uh, I have to give a lot of the credit to the mother, you know, who really formed them and helped them uh, to proceed. Most of my career, I was gone. Uh, I actually had code words that I would say to them on the phone so that they knew what part of the world and what campaigns I was involved in. So uh, it, it's, it, you know, a team effort, but largely it's done by the by the mothers. And I, I have to absolutely thank uh, my wife for taking care of that, all her work. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like that a little bit now. For most of my life, I was pretty here all the time, dad, you know, dropping off at school, picking up. But, you know, Getting into politics, unfortunately, sucks up a lot of time, and I've had to uh, I've I've had to lean on my wife a lot, and she's been fantastic. And I think that you know, in relationships, there's give and takes. You know, sometimes one partner does one one thing more or another thing more. Sure. It's, a, it's a team effort, right? Absolutely. If if I may ask you, I noticed that your uh, daughter has come to several of the events, so I've kind of just as a school teacher, I teach uh, at at a Catholic school in Manassas. 
that's a grammar school. You can figure out which one that is, I think, by that description. But uh, I, I noticed that she's around a lot. And she seems to really be absorbing what's going on. Is there a reason why you uh, started to bring her around? I bring my kids everywhere. Um, I, okay. As far as like my parenting strategy, is, uh, it's threefold. It's um, observation. I tell my kids to watch me and see how I behave with others and what I'm doing and learn from it. It's communication. It's a set of instructions, letting them know what's going on. And then it's authority. When they step out of line, somebody's got to tell them the truth, right? And right, right. <laughs> so, you know, that's just part of the structure is like, I, I get, you know, 13 years old, you don't want to come to a political event, but here I am trying to convince my community that civic education is like the most important thing you need right now. And at Absolutely. 13 years old, that's about the, the stage you should start learning about it in school. So bring the kids along and let them learn now. I, I think that's a great, great, example that you're setting it's fantastic role modeling you know as a grammar school teacher i want to thank you for doing that because I, I think that that's extremely important to start early and i think that the fact that you're also showing uh, your children how to interact with other adults how adults interact but also the level of respect between people it's a very very important part of our our national dialogue that's missing you know we really lost the ability just to sit down and have a discussion Maybe we disagree on some points, but we can have that discussion. And that's something that I'm looking forward to bringing into politics again. I like to follow the uh, Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan example. And I, I think it's important to have that dialogue. Yeah. I mean, John, I mean, we talk about that all the time, don't we? Is like, it's about debate, you know? So John's, you're, what's your uh, house, uh, house of delegates or state district, um, John? Because I'm HD30. I'm in Roberts. Where are you? Uh, I always forget the numbers and stuff. I know it's, I think it's SD31. 31. It's kind of a weird one where it's nor all like north of, of Route 7 and then mm. Leesburg and then it goes down Route 15 and then it stops at Prince William County and has like the northern part of Fauquier County. So it's a, it's another well-constructed district, as they would say. Um, it's <laughs> not as well-constructed because it was uh, built by uh, the uh, the gr special grandmasters. So we know that there wasn't too much politicking involved in there, but I think it's SD31. It's a, I know the Republican running is uh, Juan Pablo Segura. Um, he's an old friend from high school is also suing me, uh, but you know, that's, that's life. <laughs> is know. this, is this a trend? Is this a trend with your friends? Uh, I, ho I hope it, I, it is a trend at the moment. I hope it stops once I get off the, the school board, but um, it doesn't, it, it doesn't personally, right. It's, it's, it's the school board. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> just, just for the listeners out That's there, right. you know, this isn't a backyard dispute over, you know, chickens. This is, this is something different. <laughs> so, um, Robert, I'm curious, why did you jump in now? Right. As, you know, being in the state of Virginia, um, we're a purple state for a large district. You're running in a purple district realistically on a, on a red ticket. Um, the world is divided in every which way, and nobody pays attention to local politics. Why is now the right time for you to start running? I think there were a variety of factors. Uh, the first factor was that it was a new district. There was not an incumbent, and the, the district encompasses several areas that uh, I lived in. I was a longtime resident of Manassas Park. I lived there uh, for uh, many, many years, I completed the Georgetown degree there, and I, I picked Manassas Park specifically because it was near the VRE station and would allow me the flexibility to be able to jump on a train, go downtown, and study if I needed to without, you know, the, the hazard of having to drive up and down uh, 28 and Centerville Road and that big disaster that's, you know, they're trying to build and fix that. Uh, some people say they were key in fixing, and it's still a disaster. So without having to drive around uh you know it was very convenient and it's a great neighborhood some great people there and uh, a fantastic walking park if you haven't had the opportunity to go to bloom park and uh at the end of uh at the end of this road that's near andrew drive uh, i would go over there and check that out because it's, it used to be a golf course and uh, now it's a great walking park and it's very rigorous so if, if you're faint of heart Good luck because the hills are, so, but it's so gonna, beautiful, beautiful park to walk in. I'm going to jump in here real quick, Robert. So we're a different type of podcast, right? We're, we talk yeah. about politics differently. The question was, 
why are you going to jump in now? And you're telling me a park about Bloom Park and Manassas. You're getting me a little distracted here. So let's stay. It's, but it's <laughs> why now? <laughs> okay, so I, I have to use a different technique with you then. Uh, so, you know, having having spent some time in Manassas Park and then having finally, uh, after 29 years of service overseas and never owning my own house because I lived overseas most of my life. Uh, it was time to grow up and buy a house. So I bought a house in uh, Gainesville, and uh, I ended up in a nice area uh, right off Heathcote Road called uh, Heritage Hunt. And I was walking down the street at uh, Haymarket Days to integrate myself into the community. And I was um, really taken back by two groups of people. There was a, a person sitting in a blue tent by themselves, and no one was really speaking to them. And then in the red tent, there was four or five people that were 70 plus years old, cracking jokes, taking selfies of each other. And I kind of just strode up and asked if I could take the photo and began a relationship. They got me into running a little bit minor, minor thing um, with Hung Kyle's campaign. And then they asked me to run. And quite frankly, personally, I, I did it because people uh, felt that there was a lack of leadership. I feel that there's a lack of leadership. I feel there's a lack of understanding and policy and how we govern for the people, because it's very important to understand consent of the governed. I don't think that that's something that's uh, very clear in the, the minds of many politicians. And I, I think that you needed a different style of politician. I think we need to return to the Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan ability to sit together, have a conversation, talk about policy, come to a cogent conclusion and move forward in the name of the people. Okay, so civil discussion, civil debate. So you get elected, and what's your legislative priority? What leg what civil debate are you going to have when you get in there with the other side to um, well, I, some legislation done? One of my first legislative uh, acts will be uh, a bill called the Burgess's Election Integrity Act. And I'm sure if you're a Virginian, you're familiar with the House of Burgesses and its importance in the representational aspects of the American uh, legislative process. The first really group in America to have people that represented other, the citizenry was the House of Burgesses, and that was in Virginia. So one of the things I'd really like to put into place is a requirement for an ID card to vote. There currently is not an absolute requirement to, to present a photo ID when you vote. You can actually go up and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I live at this address, and uh, I'd like to vote. Now, that sounds probably not very dramatic to you, but I would like to relate to you my experience having door knocked for five weeks for Bob Weir. Uh, I, I door knocked across a significant portion of Cat Harpin, uh, Haymarket, and then uh, the Manassas zip codes that are actually in Prince William County, but are Manassas zip codes. 50% of the people that answered the door didn't actually live and weren't registered in the district. They were people that were either unregistered to vote or they, they were renting homes from people and were not the actual people that obviously lived there. So if you were to do absentee ba balloting and you had your ballot going to your house, who's getting your ballot? What election security do you have? So the second part of this is to ensure that um, any absentee balloting is accompanied by a verification of signature on the ballot against your Virginia ID card. And that has to be done at the polling place. You know, the other thing that I think is very important when we talk about election integrity is who is sponsoring the, your politicians. And this is a subject that's touchy. It's probably going to get me in a little bit of trouble. But I think something that perhaps you and I agree on uh, campaign finance reform. OK, I think that a significant portion of your campaign funds should come from the voters in your district, because if they're the people that actually want you, they're the people that should also financially support you. Now, many people perhaps don't feel that they should financially support a candidate, but it is an extremely rigorous and difficult process that can't be done without uh, campaign support. And that means funding. So if you're serious about issues and you're serious about a candidate, then you need to financially support the candidate as well. So 
sounds like your, your your legislative priority, your focus right now is making elections safer because both of those two things, ID card and campaign finance reform, they are both aimed at the system to elect better leaders, right? If you make sure that the people, you make sure that who's voting actually lives where they live and are allowed to vote there, that's the ID, right? And then second thing is, who's influencing the candidate, where the money's coming from. So the, both those things, they go together. They're targeted at the same problem, realistically. Um, I don't think that's terrible. What do you think about that, John? I think it's good. I I, um, I guess one question I would push back on in terms of the uh, the fact that you know, people are transit and stuff, like, is it unfair that someone who just moves into the area is now you know, it's has a, a three year lease or something and they they don't have a chance to vote for the representative because maybe they missed the deadline for signing up to get on the ticket, uh, their voter registration card. And now they don't have a voice as a representative, even though, um, you know, under the current system, they could show up to the polls and they could sign a card and say, yes, I do live at this place. And I'm a person like, you know, isn't it a little unfair that, that perhaps that they wouldn't get a chance to say who the representative is going to be in Richmond? John, I think that's an excellent question, an excellent statement. Uh, I would use myself as an example. I had actually left Virginia, gone to another state, and then came back for a contract because I was more or less kind of recalled for a particular contract. And I had actually moved my registration to another state. So I actually went to my polling place to do early voting. Uh, I went right in there with my lease, and I went right in there with an ID card, and I said, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'd like to register to vote. They registered me to vote immediately, and I actually uh, executed early voting on the same spot within 20 minutes, the entire process. So people's voices are extremely important. I, and my belief is that uh, as part of your First Amendment rights, the most important expression of that right is the right to vote. And so we absolutely have to facilitate it, but it has to be secure as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, go ahead, John. No, I just, uh, that's a, that's a great example, actually, because that's kind of a, what I've been thinking about is sort of, we have this dichotomy in terms of where the, the parties seem to align, where it's like, you have to show your ID and we have to prove who you are. And on the other side, you have to say like, well, we'll allow anyone to vote. And I think a good compromise between that would be so like easy registration, like you just mentioned, but you do kind of have to prove who you are. And I think like that, what you just talked about is a really wonderful example of, of sort of making sure things meet where I live in this area. I'm, uh, you know, I, I got the paperwork to show that this is my spot where I've lived, but I'm also have the paperwork to show that this is who I am. And you can trust that my vote um, matches who, where, I, where it should go. And I, I think like that's a, you know, that that's kind of in vain of where I've been going in terms of making it uh, uh, e not easier per se. Well, easier per se. Yeah. But just sort of trying to make it as less difficult as possible in order to get someone to have a chance to vote, but also, again, having the trust in, in the whole process. So I appreciate your uh, your anecdote about that. Can, can I ask you another question? John, you look young. Just a bit, just a bit. Okay. Do you need an ID card to buy cigarettes? Uh, I'm not that young, unfortunately, because I, I went to the store to get uh, okay. a drink the other day and they didn't they didn't card me, but- um, But there's, there's a requirement, right? There's Yo, a requirement. Yeah, no, and, and they would have and to- And liquor, can they buy, can you buy liquor without an ID card? Well, that was what I was buying. Yeah, they didn't ask me. Okay. Oh, so you were buying liquor and cigarettes? Now we know about you. Okay. Not <laughs> habits that you have. Okay. So can you get on an airplane or Amtrak without an ID? No. And I do know that the, the, you are, I think I know where you're going because now with the federal requirements stuff, in, as soon as they stop delaying it, but in a couple of years, you're going to have to get a, a really very strict federally uh, basically uh, validated ID that says this is who I am. Yeah, it's called yeah, the real ID. Can you yeah, buy a yeah. weapon without an ID? Uh, from what I've heard in, in the ads, all you got to do is go to a gun show. <laughs> yeah, but you have to. That's, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, but you still have to have an ID, right? And yeah, you have an ID. And, yeah. So, so if you need an ID for all of those things, the most important fundamental American right, the expression of your vote, is done without an ID and we think that's normal? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So that that's one of my priorities is to ensure that people are correctly identified and they're identified as an American citizen or you know, as a resident alien that under US law has the right to vote. We want those people to vote. We wanna facilitate them voting. And we, we think that's an important expression of Americanism and patriotism. Yeah, I mean- no, I completely agree. 
yeah, I mean, you you mentioned there's got to be freedom, right? And uh, at our house, we just put a fence in our backyard, right? And we put this fence in there because we've got this dog who just loves to chase cars. And so we can't really let him out. He'll go and chase anything. But we've also got two six-year-olds who love to be outside. But at the same time, if they, you know, if they stay in the backyard, it's fine. We can see them. But if they, they're going around front, we can't. Well, now we've got this fenced-in area where they can't get out at all. They're safer now, right? Like we put this restriction on them, but now they have more freedom because now they're not trapped inside the house. Now they can go out whenever they want. They don't have to ask. They just be like, hey, we're going outside. And now they can go out. And so they have a little bit more freedom with this little bit of restriction. I think that's what the ID law would do, sure. right? Is yes. get the and then you can kind of clean up the process, clean up the voter rolls, get all this stuff, maybe streamline right. it. I think if you're an individual citizen, your concern here would be, is the government collecting data on who I vote for or how are they doing that if they have all this information on me? That would be a concern. And that's certainly something that needs to be thought about when writing the legislation and the policy for that. So, you know, and not to say that any one party would end up wanting to do this at the beginning, but once somebody finds a treasure trove of data and they were like, hey, this will help me get elected, let me use this, you know, that's how, sure. that's how the system works sometimes. So, I, you know, again, good idea. We definitely need a little fenced-in area for our elections. A um, so little bit of little bit of safety creates a little bit of freedom. Um, and uh, yeah, I I, I agree. Uh, just it's got to be done right. You got to and so here's my next question: How are you going to build a coalition with people in Richmond to do that? I think that there's already a group of like-minded people that actually would uh, positively. Uh, vote for and help sponsor this type of legislation. I think that everybody is everybody. I think that there's a certain group of people that uh, believe that election integrity is important. And I think that's on both sides. I think that's a bipartisan uh, view. I, there are clearly sure. some portions of certain parties that maybe don't see it that way. And they perhaps would like to turn it into an issue which my opponent has already done put on twitter that i'm trying to remove fundamental rights no i'm trying to secure your fundamental rights to make sure that only you the american citizen or only you the person who lives at a residence and requested that absentee ballot actually fills out that ballot otherwise 50 percent of the houses that i went to you could end up voting twice because they take your ballot they put it in for whoever they want you don't know you go to the polling place i, I saw it happen during early voting because i was there as an election monitor i had three people came in and said uh hey i'm here to vote and they said no sir you already voted early voting and they had to go through a massive deconfliction program it's uh not not a good thing so, so you, said, you said that you think there's already uh a coalition to be had there and it's on both sides of the aisle can you name somebody so. on the other side of the aisle that has? has I, I don't want to drag people into my podcast because then, in I, I, you know, at, at this point, when you start dragging names of people inside, then they end up getting trolls following them too. So, I'm going to protect uh, the innocent by saying uh, nothing about the particular names. But I've had, in fact, four senators and uh, three people from the General Assembly contact me when they heard me speak at another event and say, "Hey, we absolutely support that. We think it's a good idea." And, you know, if you, if you win, we'd like to help uh, well, so, sponsor so that legislation. I said this at my meeting yesterday. I tell this to my kids all the time. If, if it's not said out loud and then back, it ain't real, right? You know, for senators, right. you know, like as a voter, as a voter in my district, like I hear that a lot from politicians. Like I've got these people that are going to vote for this when I get to office. But it's like, well, who are they? And are they saying the same thing? Because realistically, if we want to make any real change in the state of Virginia, you got to get a group of people. And if there's somebody on the other side, like that's first primary objective, get that person to go public that you're working with the other side, right? Like show the American people that we can actually work to, or excuse me, show the Virginian people that we can actually yes. work together, you know? Um, and I think you know, particularly I've I've grown up here. I've lived here my whole life. I'm very rooted in the community in both Manassas, Gainesville, Haymarket area. And I'm telling you, the the everyday citizens, they're not red or blue. They're just people working together trying to get things done. I think um, the city of Man Manassas has done a great job. Uh, the camaraderie in that city is fantastic, and the city I think has thrived because of it. Um, and I, you know, I feel that everywhere I go in this community. Um, and I'm just waiting for politicians to 
follow suit with the people that they're leading realistically. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you touched on uh, several very important points. First, the, the power of the Manassas community. It is a great community. And, you know, they've got their own model, Manassas Strong. They did uh, their very, very best during COVID uh, to retain as many businesses as possible. They were extremely successful. And part of that is the spirit of the people. I mean, you can see when, you, when there's First Friday, uh, the number of people that are out there in the street just enjoying and it. it's a fantastic place to go on first friday uh, i think that the, the credit really goes to the people but let's talk about you know the results of the last election and what the people had to say what they're looking for is not radical people they're not looking for people that are dogmatic that are on one side or the other they're looking for people that understand compromise that want to work together uh, that actually are not interested in just the maintenance of their power but in the governing uh, for the cons uh, governing by consent of the people, and you know that that's a foundational phrase from uh, our most important documents, is uh, you know governing by consent and governing of the consented. So I, I think that uh, you know when we talk about Manassas, Manassas Park, they they fe they feature quite prominently. Uh, in any any strategy that has to do with reconciliation of so the, so the most important thing, again, uh, people of Manassas, the spirit of Manassas, uh, and their desire for politicians that understand what the people's needs are, consent of the governed, and are willing to move forward to resolve the issues that they need you to resolve. Not in a dogmatic way, not far right, not far left, but governing from the center. I think that's an important point for them. So, I mean, yes, and that is... That, that's a big point for me as well. And I do believe that the people of this community want that. But at our at our class yesterday, we asked the question, what could get you involved? And one of the gentlemen said, give me something, right? Like, what are you going to do for me, the individual citizen? And he mentioned something that's, you know, a policy position that he's on. Well, locally, we have a lot of like local issues that are very hot topic. And I'm going to just roll through them. And I'm going to let you, you know, give me a little feedback okay. on so sure. The big issue where we live, education, data centers, um, yep. taxes. As a small business owner, we don't have enough real estate for to expand businesses. There's not enough uh, places to go. I think there's a housing shortage realistically as well. You know, like what 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 can you do or what is your focus in the state Senate to, you know, those are the things when I go to, you know, political rallies. This is what citizens are talking about. What are you telling them back? So you want to start with everyone's favorite uh, subject, data centers? Yeah, we might as well. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Uh, so uh, jump in here because you've got some experience out there in Loudoun County. <laughs> they, they've got an entire row of data centers that fills a highway zone. It was uh, shocking for me to drive down, uh, drive down that Loudoun County Parkway and see all the data centers, see all of the industrialization that's happened to look at the number of diesel generators that are everywhere uh, was for me very shocking to see. I think that um, there's going to be evolution uh, regardless of what we want personally, but that has to be done in a planned way. There has to be a data center overlay. You fill that overlay. And then before it's decided by people that are supposed to be a representative government governors, uh, in this case, Board of County Supervisors, there should be a public referendum and they should they should say, look, we filled the data center overlay and we're interested in increasing the business opportunities and we'd like to create another overlay. Uh, it shouldn't be piecemeal. It shouldn't be done as it's being done now. Uh, I, I don't think uh, that, quite frankly, the county's done the work that needs to be done. When you look at uh, how the data center overlay was done, there's, is there an electromagnetic survey? Is there water impact? Is there air quality impact? Is there noise impact? I don't think any of those things were considered. I've asked repeatedly, you know, if those surveys have been done, uh, no one can show me a survey. Uh, none of the other people that are involved in any of the data center business have seen any type of environmental survey that, that talks about safety and security for our families and our futures. So I, I think that, um, the, the data, the way the data center business has been done is uh, wholly wrong, in my well, view, and so not in favor of the citizens. So I went I went to a town hall with Bob Weir, who's our board of county supervisors where I live. Yes. And 
you talked about, and they had another gentleman there talking as well about how they've got a lot of uh, soot in the reservoir in Aquas. Yes. Now, yep. We don't heavy metals. Uh, Prince Prince William County doesn't own that. Fairfax County, I believe, is the one that, or yeah, Fairfax County, I believe, owns that. We get our water from there, um, and it's now we're polluting it. It, it sounds like, <laughs> and then you know, there's there's noise issues as well, and and. You know, he made it sound like there could be potential brownouts in the uh, during the summertime if we, you know, a heat wave or whatever because of the amount of, of energy that they're using. They're already having to pump energy in. I mean, it does this make our safe? Does this make our state safer when we become dependent on others in order to support this large infrastructure that really is, it doesn't bring much value to our district. It doesn't bring much value to the state. Um, you know, yeah. most yeah, people. It brings a tremendous amount of value. Like this is like, uh, this is where like the communication aspect comes in. We talk about like, oh, data centers that take up space and they take up, they look like an eyesore. They lower your property taxes by a third at the very least in the current iteration. And this is like, this is the problem here because we've kind of going back to what Robert was saying about how um, the board of supervisors are responsible for this. Like all this is local tax dollars that come into it. And you just mentioned Jeff, the fact that taxes are a problem for your business. Your taxes as a business are going to be lower because you've got some other business that the board of supervisors is able to milk as much as they can in order to bring revenue into there. And what those, because those are those tend to be big corporations that have a lot of smart people working on them in terms of how to uh, work the, the tax liabilities and stuff, they've now realized that they don't have to buy new servers every three years, which is what the count the board of supervisors thinks they're going to do. They can stretch that out to four, five, six years, and that actually lowers Even the more. tax increase. Yeah. It, it just Even more the amount of it coming in. Change the chip. If you change the chip, you're not changing the rack. You change the chip, mm -hmm. there's no change in the peripheral tax. So you're on an ever declining scale of taxation. So this big windfall of taxes that they believe uh, the government people believe they were going to receive is not going to happen. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't a very, um, I would say, a cooperative agreement. It was sort of like we realize people want to come in and it's close to the fiber. It's close. It's you know close to other data centers and there's sort of internal uh, technical reasons why it's nice to be close to other data centers. And so they're just going to, the idea was, well, we could just milk the rich that are coming in. And this is a perfect example where like just taxing people just for the sake of tax them. Um, eventually they realize, they find out the loopholes and they figure out ways to lower the money. So going back to the communication aspect, it was communicated as this is going to save your property taxes by a third, if not more. And now we're starting to see the problems around it where if you were to kick all the data centers out, A, your taxes are gonna go up. So that's a you know disadvantage. B, we'll, you know, maybe may it'll fix the pollution, but the, those heavy metals are already there. So it might be too late, but like that's, that. there's a lot of, I'd say there's a lot more nuance going into just saying, let's figure out the, the data centers. Yeah, well, I mean, in Prince William County, they have a lot more data centers to build yet. And we've mm -hmm. already having these problems and mm -hmm. our taxes aren't really going down at all. Um, I mean, so my, my property taxes went up. I don't know, Jeff, what about you? Uh, I'd have to go look to be sure. But I think we kind of I think we were pretty balanced this year. Um, but no, have... mine, went, mine went up in Loudoun County. But I think it's 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 not per se that your taxes go down. It's the fact that your taxes stay the same and then the government services go up in a different and not in a commensurate level so that something is is filling that that gap right there and filling that void i don't want more government services okay i'm just I saying i'm just saying government services <laughs> robert do you want more government services <laughs> maybe i i would like to bring to you efficient government services mm -hmm. all right services all right. that actually so function need. so you get your money's worth you know you pay taxes there's supposed to be a promise of effective government and what i'd like to do is bring effective government to you just well, you. Just me. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's how the government talks to like Bezos. It's like, we're going to bring effective government to you, Bezos. Everybody else, they have to pay for it. <laughs> um, well, I mean, okay. and, and part of that is all this infrastructure to support the data centers. You know, do you think that uh, the data center themselves are paying for the substations, for the extra water purification has to happen, the pumping stations? And it's not, it's actually not purifying the water. It's uh, actually making it worse. You know, we didn't, I think we skipped around a little bit, um, the Occoquan watershed and what's happening, you know, and as you shrink the amount of forested land that's on each side of an example of Cat Harpen uh, Creek, the river itself, it cannot purify the water. So what's being dumped in right now into the watershed at the end 
into the Chesapeake Bay is heavy metals. So we received a briefing on this where they actually showed us the level of heavy metals and it's increasing and increasing and increasing as you shrink the amount of land because you're building all the data centers on e either side because it also happens to be near where all the electrical substations and current lines are, uh, that's only going to make it worse. And so in the end, you know, what are you going to end up with? You're going to end up with uh, an area that has additional pollution because of the data centers. Yeah, that's how are they going to how are they cleaning the water that comes in and out of the data centers? I don't know, but I hope you find out when you get the get to the state. Um, so the briefing that you were mentioning, if you have that uh, somewhere, if you want to share with us so we can share with our, our listeners. Okay. As well, because I'll see what I can. I'll see where I can find it. Yeah, um, just put it out there. So, you know, we we talked about this is like, what is you as a state senator? You got a lot of people coming to you talking about data centers. Like, what can you do about it? Is there anything you can do about it? Is it out of your hands? Is it in another's jurisdictions? Tell us the, the citizens of the district, like, what's your plan for this? Well, you know, the, the primary mechanism that we have is uh, legislation. So there's two things that I think are possible to do. First is to put legislation in place that bans data centers uh, from, let's pick a distance, one mile from the Manassas National Battlefield, one mile from any schools or any kind of residential areas, because there is, I believe, a hum that comes out of all the data centers. Now, you know, if you park your car over on 234, there's a bunch of data centers and there's some housing that's next to it. And there's some noise that comes out of it. Any any electrical substation produces noise. So there is uh, a, an accumulation of noise that occurs from a substation, from water pumping, from uh, a data center itself. They're, you know, wanting to tell us there's not gonna be any noise. Well, you know, as a military commander, one of my responsibilities was to set up bare base operations in the desert and we use diesel generators they pollute they're noisy and there's no way that there, there's not going to be a cumulative assembly of noise that's uh, going to occur from these facilities so, that, so that's a serious serious problem for the citizens you're echoing kind of the same philosophy uh so ian lovejoy who's running in the house of delegates who is in your district like it's encompassed inside your district sure. he has mentioned this i've been to a few of his events and he talks about uh, battling the, the data centers through legislation of noise ordinance, uh, essentially. And he, I believe he actually lives near one. And he talked about, you can hear it at night. You can see it glow at night. Yes. It's noise and light pollution. Um, but there's there's some different, there's a lot of different factors in there as far as with legislation. And, you know, legislating something out because of noise can be really difficult because there's unintended consequences for that. You know, I think it needs to be targeted very specifically at the data center if that's the objective. And if really that's the objective, isn't there another type of legislation that can just be like, hey, maybe maybe we weren't consulted as people about this. And maybe we just like take a pause for a minute and like reevaluate the whole system situation before you put a whole bunch of concrete blocks in our community that are going to be obsolete in 10 years from pretty much Anyone that I talk to in IT right. that right. like, you know, they're all like, these things aren't going to be around in 10 years. And then no. what do you do with the, what are we going to do as the community? And you've given up all your pristine land, the pristine views. You now have light bleed into uh, the air. So at night, you're not going to see the beautiful stars anymore. You know, what you knew as the rural crescent and people loved as the rural crescent, the reason why many people moved here is going to be gone. It's going to be urban blight. And then right. what do you do with what do you do with the facilities that you can no longer use as um, data centers once you know we move to a more sophisticated technology? You're going to have to repurpose those warehouses into something else. And then are those warehouses properly wired and prepared for the next stop, next business? I would prefer to see, quite frankly, a pharma corridor here. Okay, we've got a majority of our medicines, base ingredients for medicines, made in China. Okay, do we think that's good for us strategically? terrible for us. They can choke you off from any, any of the medicines that you need to heal yourself in any hospital in America. Okay. There's other things as well that we should focus on. We should focus on bringing more business into Virginia. Now, uh, Northern Virginia is not the only place you can put data centers. There's another hook. Hold on. I want to, I want to stop you with, with that. You said, I want to focus on bringing more business into Virginia. That's what everybody in Virginia is doing. 
what about the businesses that are here that don't have the opportunity to grow their business? Like, because that's the ones that are rooted in the community, helping each other I, out. And I don't really hear a lot of politicians talking about the people that live here. Like, do we want to support Virginians or do we want to support Californians? Because I'm personally, I'm about all about Virginia. You know, that's where I'm born and raised. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that you're asking that question because it's extremely important. And quite frankly, I'd like to see a scaled um, tax for business tax so that perhaps if we can just use these numbers. If you make 10 million and below in a year, maybe you pay 2% business tax. More than that, there's a scaling that happens, maybe 4%. But I want to give you the individual small business owner who is the engine of the American economy. I need to repeat that. Small businesses, we found out during COVID, small businesses are the engine of the American economy. We have to incentivize small business, and we do that by giving you a reduced tax base that allows you as a business to reinvest in your business. I happened to be at the Ben Lomond uh, Historic Day yesterday, and there was a young lady there who's just started a new shearing farm. Okay, so she's got sheep. She bought sheep. And I asked her, I said, well, if you had the opportunity to spend more money or if you had more cash, what would you do with it? And she said to me, I invested in my business. So I said, more machines? She goes, yes, more machines, more sheep, more people to help me in the shearing business, I guess, so they shear the wool and then create uh, clothing and blankets and other things from it as well, right? As well as um, dairy products and agricultural products. So she said, I'd like more cash to invest in, in, in my business. And I think that's exactly where we need to go. We have to incentivize small businesses in this county by lowering the business tax. The other thing I don't understand is why we're constantly paying tax on cars. You know, you paid the tax when you bought the car the first time. Why every year are we paying this massive luxury tax on cars? I'd rather put more money in your pocket and let you decide how to spend it, not to let the Board of County Supervisors decide how to spend it, who, who gave you this wonderful feature called data centers. Well, so I, Gilmore tried this back in the mid-90s. It didn't work so well for him. Um, it's a funny story about that. So uh, in the mid-90s, my dad uh, started this Halloween tradition at our house. I think, John, you came to the last one, right? So that yeah. Halloween... We started and uh, you remember the tractor that my dad had there. So he had built boards and he created, he painted it, he cut windows into it. And it, it, it was made like a, like a haunted house that was on fire that we drove through. And he, he put uh, tombstones on there. And in 1994, he put car tax died. 19, I think it was 1995. And like three years later, four years later, my dad is redoing this and he's painting over that. And I go, dad, what does that mean? He goes, something stupid I believed in. <laughs> I thought the government was actually going to get rid of a tax. <laughs> so, sorry, I got I got sidetracked with a, with a story about car taxes, but um, all I heard was Halloween and some oh. strange thing that you guys were doing. What's this about? <laughs> so, um, we're 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 making fun of the fact that it's going to be. How are you going to get rid of the car tax? Where, where, where is the initiative, you know, to get rid of the car tax? And also, you know, we talked about, we started on business. We ended up on car tax, um, you know, as a small business owner, the two things that I kind of, you know, gripe about the most and uh, would be the minimum wage. Uh, I believe that it caps out the labor market and it encourages it encourages small businesses to have to pay higher wages to non-ready labor, like high school students or college students, entry-level jobs. I just think it's ridiculous. And then the other thing is the payroll taxes. I think they're just out of whack. You know, can you do anything for me there? You know, <laughs> as the state senator, can you can you help me out on lowering the minimum wage, creating a more competitive labor market inside of our state? Because you know, it's almost impossible to hire somebody out there right now. So certainly we have to look at how we uh, structure state taxes. We have to also make sure that we're doing, uh, I think when you talk about personal income tax and sales tax, a regressive tax where food perhaps and, and family necessities are taxed at a lower rate than luxury items. That's something that I, I really am interested in pursuing and I think would be very good uh, for Virginia. You know, if you decide you want to spend money on something that's your business, we get the tax money from that. And, I, and we should incentivize you to spend more money on the kinds of things that you want to spend. You know, as in terms of, um, we were talking about employment and payroll tax, certainly lots of work has to be done on that. I, I don't agree with necessarily the 
uh, minimum wage uh, the way it's laid out and how it's done. I think it should be scaled based on perhaps some expertise. Uh, and I think a lot of it should be really at, at the latitude of you, the employer. You know, you're more, more proficient, more productive employees. You should be allowed to reward them with a higher wage. Okay, if they're doing great business and they're helping you make more money, then you should be you should be able to choose what they make. Of course, there has to be you know a minimum wage, obviously, because people have to be able to live. But I, I think that it should be more flexible than the way it's laid out. So I I I don't think that minimum wage should be a living standard. I just I don't think that's the point of of what a minimum wage is for. I think the idea that you just mentioned about scaling it would be a good way to to like manage that. In between, because like, I, you know, my biggest thing is why do I need to pay $15 to a high school kid to fold a t-shirt, right? Why can't I pay him 10? Well, and, and yes, the minimum wage isn't actually 15, but this is how the system gets pushed is corporations raise that pay. Eventually the state catches up or the federal catches up to it. Um, but if but they, why, why do corporations do that to you, the small business, what's their methodology? Well, because you can't run and grow your business if you don't have the labor to do so. So if they choke off the labor market, they choke off the opportunity for competition. Yes. Uh, once they pull all the comp once they pull all the labor out of the market, they soak up all the industries that are dying. They go around, they buy them because now the small businesses owner is struggling. They're tired. You make them a good offer. I mean, there's small businesses around here that are literally selling out to these data center facilities. They're selling their property off, even though it was really difficult to do it. And they're doing it because they're just worn out and they're ready to get out of running the small business because they can't find the labor to continue on. This is just the, this is the way the system works. It's gone. It's as repetitive. It's, you know, over and over it's cyclical. So um, let's, let's move on to something else here. I think that's a great idea. I'd like to talk to you offline about that. Yeah. Let's come up with uh, what we think is a good scaling program. And then maybe we can do this on another program and talk about the details of what we solved. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll sit down and talk. But so the other thing um, locally here, and John is knows a lot about this as well. Education, John, is there anything that he can do? You know, you're on the school board. What does your state senator do for you as a as a uh, for education? What doesn't your state senator do? So, uh, Robert, I, I also work at a small private uh, Catholic school, so I I know what it's like to to kind of be in that sort of arena. Uh, and then I'm also on the school board. So I understand just like the, someone comes into the school board and say, well, I can fix X, Y, and Z. But in reality, so much of what's happens at the local level is really, it's it's dictated by the Virginia Department of Education, which is all granted these authorities by the state legislature. So, uh, you know, when you win, uh, you'll be in a particular position to actually really affect the things that maybe someone running for the school board thinks that they can affect. Because um, for example, like, uh, the the perhaps the transgender policy that might come into your school, perhaps the um, accreditation policies, perhaps how books are chosen. Like one of the big things that's been kind of rolling through Loudoun County Public Schools, one of the many um, things is just the idea that we actually need to teach our children how to read, and <laughs> that imagine that schools teaching kids how to read. Um, but mean, there's the kind of a, teaching quantum physics in school, and we're teaching. Uh, you know, woke subjects. I I'm, I think that we've gone dramatically but, but off even, where we need to be. Even like even before this, I'm talking about like the, the whole like reading curriculum comes from the Virginia Department of Education. And so the, it's it, that's a power granted to it by the state legislature. So like what are, what are your ideas in terms of how to rein in the, the bureaucracy at the state level to allow the, you know, even with the local bureaucracies to kind of experiment, try new things and, and to sort of uh, not be so beholden to what happens in Richmond. I think the first thing that has to be laid out is what is the curriculum that we really need to advance children today? There are some basic subjects, you know, as Jeff kind of uh, touched on, reading might be important. So being able to read, uh, obviously, mathematics, advanced mathematics, but I also think that some of the after-school programs, you know, there's a $3 billion tax surplus in Richmond, and what I'd like to do if I, when you elect me is uh, to take a portion of that and put it into uh, academic and scholastic programs. I think after-school programs where you focus perhaps on some of the students' interests, whether it be uh, sciences, STEM perhaps, uh, how about art? Uh, maybe singing. We have to find what really makes these children 
grow and blossom. And that's where the focus needs to be. We also need to look very seriously at teacher pay. I'm not a big one for wanting to raise taxes, but if there's a way that we can funnel uh, taxes, an example would have been these data centers. It, the concept was that that money would go to the schools. So I've not seen any line item funding mechanisms where the tax money goes directly from the data center to the school board so that they have more resources. It's something I'd be very interested to see from uh, you know, a variety of different Board of County Supervisors, not only my own and Prince William. I think though that we have to raise the academic standards, not lower the standards. And we have to resource schools and teachers to be able to teach at a higher level. They have to be paid more significantly because children are our future. Children are the future of the state. If you don't have highly educated employees, what kind of business are you gonna have? So How are you gonna progress? I mean, would you want a kid that can't do, uh, you know, basic physics to build a bridge? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think that a kid needs to do basic physics. I think a kid needs to learn to read and write. And I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of teachers and principals in this district. And the first thing that they talk about is class size. It's too big. The second thing they talk about is the subject matter. Uh, the curriculum is overloaded. There's too many things on these kids' plate. They need to pare it back because it, you can't learn physics if you haven't learned how to read first, right? And they're, they're zigzagging these kids all across the curriculum at a young level, and they're overloaded, and they're never given the time to actually learn the basics of what they need. And then the next thing they need, so it was, uh, hold on, I got this. I just did this the other day. The... Um, Classroom size, reading and writing. And then the other thing is accountability. They need to be able to have some power to like enforce this stuff with the students and the parents. Because right now, if a kid misbehaves or he can't get the grade, you know, the the parent can kind of complain and move through the bureaucracy and get their kid to get that, you know, retake that test or to avoid any serious you know, punishment because my kid could never do that. You must have the wrong kid. Um, and you know, the, the thing that I hear from teachers a lot is the kids are misbehaving and we have no power. Like we're expected to basically pick up the parenting load and they don't want us to have any type of authority over their children at all. Um, okay. So, so as, as we talk about the, the curriculum, you know, what, what can we influence? It's a state level vice, something that's a, a county level issue. So that state level, this is why I said that we need to have more after school programs because let's face it, majority of parents are dual working parent families. Okay. So there's no one. If, if the teachers are complaining about being overworked because there's too many kids in their classrooms and you haven't solved that issue yet. You're going to add work to the teacher's plates by having more after school things when you already don't have volunteers, you're already understaffed, there's teachers already leaving. I don't see how this solves the problem. Where are we going to focus on? Like if the if the people who do the job every single day say the problem is you put too many kids in my classrooms and you've given me too much work to do and there's not enough help, where are we going to focus on getting them help to actually solve the problem because one-on-one -on -one time with your student, with your child, is how they learn. Time to read is how they learn. An extra, uh, you know, an extra standard, another test, or an after-school activity doesn't solve anything. Are the are the best people staying in teaching? No. No. Okay. No, they're they're okay. upset with it. Well, 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 they, 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 they get their uh, they get their five percent raise. Uh, which you know is is good and like that's that's a lot of money that you're putting into the school system it's a adds a couple hundred million dollars to every okay. local budget especially if you're so bigger. how many how um, many teachers have we but, had quit this year uh i don't know the number of time i had but a lot. it's one of those like anecdotal okay. things one of those anecdotal things where you again you talk to teachers they're leaving this is the problem though like you, you know um so you, you will find people that come in you either have to change the budget to authorize more teachers, which means more more funds to the school systems, or what you what you have to do is um, create an, an alternative school system. So this is where you get into um, you know school choice. So some parents want kids to go to a different school. Uh, you know that's that's a methodology. It's not a great methodology to lower the classroom size, but I think the only solution is to raise teacher pay pay them uh, a great wage because you want them to stay in teaching. 
uh, if you're highly talented and you know you have other options, there are some people that love teaching and will stay because they love to teach. There are other people who are going to say, I don't want to put up with this and I'm talented enough, I go somewhere else and they do. So you, just like um, you know, we talked a little bit about minimum wage, you've got to pay teachers, I think, a, a significant wage for the task that they're taking on, which is educating the future of our country, first thing. I think that uh, additional facilities, you know, as you indicated, classrooms are um, packed full of kids. I think you need better facilities, and that means more funding from Richmond, okay? But I mean, uh, and I, I, think there, I think there are more creative ways to get around that. I mean, right I mean, now- Okay, I'm interested Robert, to hear your ideas. Robert, Robert I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you one number. All you gotta Please. do- you got to change. You got to change the state staffing standards. This is what they, what the the bureaucracy throws at you during the school board budget meeting. They say, "We are so much better than the state staffing standard because the state staffing standard is X number of students per teacher, and we are, you know, you know, if for example, say that's twenty eight or something for whatever kind of class or whatever record, and we're at twenty six. You know, if you were, to, I bet if you were to change that instead of giving a, a teacher raise, if you said we're gonna we're gonna change it to like twenty students per teacher like that would be the quality of life difference and so that even that if you point. weren't getting a pay raise you were getting a better job because you had more time to breathe i've talked okay. to special education teachers where oh, they that's, that's they're just like point. you know they've got like you know they've got like 10 kids or something they got to manage 10 special education students but so much of their work is not really dealing with a student per se not being able to influence their lives like you're talking with your daughter it's about filling out paperwork it's about i gotta check the box because when the parent says i didn't do x y or z i've got it written down that i did x y and z and like that's you know that's a corrosive environment that's an adversarial relationship when really it should be we're all working together for the child like i think that would be the biggest difference right there if you said i'm going to fix the state staffing standards and i'm going to dramatically dramatically lower that where we're actually going to put we're going to, the state is going to mandate fewer students per classroom, you know, but, that you'll find more teachers perhaps, you know, because it'll be a better job. And then the teacher, it's the, one of the big complaints with, with teachers and the, the need for unionization that they argue is that we don't have enough time to prep. Well, if you've got uh, less overhead, perhaps, you know, you have more time to prep, more real time to work with the students. I think that would make a big so, difference. So the, the big problem there, John, is there are not enough classrooms if you did that. I mean, we're already overloaded. Uh, where my son goes to school at Ronald Reagan, there's classrooms and trailers all over the place. And that's mm -hmm. a common theme in Prince William County schools. So my, my solution is you change the schedule, right? So instead of kids going in the traditional schedule now, you do a four quarters and you split the student body of like a school like Ronald Reagan in half, okay? One go, half of the school goes in quarter one and then they're off in quarter two. And then the other half goes in quarter three and then they're off in quarter four. They're just alternating back and forth, right? And so what this does is it gives the opportunity to cut the classroom size in half immediately. Now you're gonna have you know teachers teaching year round at this point. I still think you need to hire uh, more teachers. I still think you probably should raise teacher pay a little bit, but you're going to be able to cut the classroom size down. So who does this help most? It helps the student and the teacher because now the teacher's job's easier. Now the student has more time with the teacher and it's a better working environment. If the complaint from all the teachers is we have too many kids in our class and I can't do my job, then how do we solve that? Right there, cut them in half. Um, and you have to be creative because you just don't have enough buildings in the school and we don't have, we can't raise taxes to go build, you know, double the amount of schools we have in our no. county. That would be ridiculous. You certainly can. So, you know, to recap that on the state level, really, we're talking about staff staffing standards and a change mm -hmm. in staffing standards. And then perhaps as well, you know, a, an increase in teachers pay and some certification things that happen. You know, when you talk about buildings and so forth, that really is a county issue. Uh, and that's kind of above my purview as a, a potential state senator. But I like very much your idea. And I also like, I think that you can uh, alternate um, so that maybe one class starts at seven and then another class starts at 10. You can also alternate the time of the year when the students start, right? So maybe some start at a certain month and, and they finish maybe a little bit later. And that might also give you some breathing room on terms of the space required to teach them, right? Yeah, uh, but well, again, that's that's, that's, that's a local goal. that's a local issue that uh, uh, the, you know the county school board gentlemen like John will have to. Well, no, this is why I push back. Like a lot of this is a it's it's a, it's a state driven thing, not necessarily from the legislature, but it's sort of the thing the legislature actually has a lot of control over. So um, 
I would bet someone, someone somewhere will say, well, we can't actually do staggered terms because the legislature hasn't allowed us. So that's where, um, you know, the, the legislature actually has a lot of authority and power in terms of directing what the governor can do. And then what, the, what that trickles down into local school boards. No, that, uh, that's fantastic. And I appreciate that information. Mm -hmm. I wrote it down so that now you're part of my uh, new educational platform. Congratulations. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope so you... That's the Madisonian Republicans. We teach and uh, we lead and, and all that. It's just just uh, just to be clear, this is just an idea off the top of my, you know, like I've been fiddling with for the last week. It's, you know, you got to iron these things out before we bring them to the legislature. But uh, but yeah, I mean, look, creative solutions to problems is what government or small businesses is all about, right? Like <laughs> you have to be able to do that because you're spending other people's money. So you wanna spend as little of it as possible and you wanna be able to provide the services that you've promised. I would argue sure. that the education system in Virginia is not providing the services promised. When you have 27 to 20 to 32 kids in a classroom and your teachers are telling you help and they're telling you with their words and they're telling you with their actions because they're leaving in droves, then you have to act and do something. And I think this is kind of the direction we need to go. I think it's a great direction, and I, I want to add uh, a small snippet to that. So, you know, when I was formulating my policy on education, I spoke with a lot of teachers that uh, are in the Manassas area. And one of the things that they told me is they're having a tremendous amount of difficulty motivating students to stay engaged in school. That they're being, in fact, they're telling the teachers, look, I can go work for my uh, my uncle you know, make an X amount of dollars uh, a day, and I don't need an education to do that. I can just go work for him, right? So they're not seeing the benefit in education, and the parents aren't incentivizing the children saying, look, I want something better for you than what I had. I want you to be able to have a better job, and uh, it, it's a very difficult situation, I think, for a lot of teachers. I mean, how do you fight, you know, a kid who's 15 telling you, well, yeah, I'm going to I'm not coming to school today because I'm going to go work for my uncle in the uh, automotive yard. I'm going to make, you know, one hundred and ten dollars today. It's tough. All right. Um, so we're we, we got a wrap here uh, kind of rolling towards the end. I want to ask a question here from uh, one of our Madisonian friends, uh, Phil. He sent in a list of questions. I kind of got one earlier, but um Let's see which one here. Uh, do you think gun control laws are enforceable in Virginia, including concealed carry licenses, given the Constitution of Virginia expressly states in Article 1, Section 3, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed? Okay, so when you say enforced, what, what does it really mean? Well, it's not my question, but my guess is he's so thinking I, of a federal law the... that would supersede the state law, um, and would that be able? Uh, he's probably looking at you know grounds for nullification. If I if I know Phil, sure. So I'm <laughs> I'm a, I'm a uh, yeah if, if we know Phil. So uh, I'm a constitutional carry guy. I think that the Constitution already lays out what your rights are in terms of carry. Uh, I think though that you you do have to have. Uh, some security in there because, you know, you don't give a person a car and say, go drive the car down the street without training, right? Uh, no. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So do you, you know, let a person go conduct surgery without going to medical school? So, I mean, I only think- on a, Only on a battlefield. So, but only I, on the battlefield. Okay. I, I think that if, now this is, a, how do you look at the second amendment? Let me finish think, what I have to say here. Go ahead, so, go ahead. So, so I think that there has to be some safety training that goes with this. I think that you do have to have a waiting period for purchasing weapons because that does help eliminate a portion of the people that perhaps may be purchasing uh, weapons because they're angry about something. Okay, uh, I'm not a big one for permits because I'm not sure that they actually achieve the goals they're meant to achieve. Because I guess I would ask you, does a felon have a permit when they commit a wep uh, a crime with a weapon? I doubt it. Okay, so and you know, we're, we're, who are you really punishing by making people have permits? You're punishing the law-abiding citizens who already have a constitutional right to keep and bear arms, right? Uh, red flag laws. I don't like the red flag laws the way they're currently written because I think that they can be abused. And I think, you know, if your neighbor doesn't like you and knows that you have guns, they can just call and complain and say, oh, I saw so-and-so doing X or Y. So I, I don't like the way they're written. I'm not in favor of them. Okay.
All right. Well, so we're going to have to come back to this because I have some I have some follow ups. We're kind of short on time for the night. Uh, Robert it has been fantastic. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, John and I are going to try to get as many candidates on the show as possible. Thanks. Next week, we have uh, Eddie Garcia, who's running for U.S. State Senate. Um, so a lot of federal questions next week. Um, I'll I'll leave you with two things. One, I want to know or let the people know where they can find you, right? So they can come out and either volunteer or talk to you, give them, uh, you know, what's important to them. And then two, is there a question you'd like to ask Eddie Garcia? Go ahead. So first uh, to all the uh, viewers, www.voterufalo.com. You'll find a variety of my policies as well as uh, some other photos and details about me. And of course, the most important thing, which is a donate now button. You know, it's always important to have funding to write the campaign. And I think for Mr. Garcia, I would like to know what is his real vision to enhance small business in Virginia? And if we define small business in accordance with the SBA, that means everything from a mom and pop shop up to the Lakers, because that's how the SBA, you know, kind of termed that during the last PPP crisis. But I'm really interested in what is he going to do and how is he going to help me as the next state senator lower business taxes, incentivize small business under $10 million and under, and how he's going to help us bring medium businesses, especially manufacturing, at the half a billion dollar level all the way down to 10 million. I bet he's going to be very excited to talk about that because I've seen a Probably few videos. Probably not. I'm, I'm going to guess oh, not. He's, he's, I've already seen some videos out there. He is actually talking about, uh, you know, the manufacturing and jobs right. and stuff. So we'll uh, we'll see what he thinks about that. Uh, John, would uh, you want to leave the people with anything? Uh, talk a little bit about the meeting before we got to go. Uh, it was one of our best meetings ever in terms of the, the turnout and stuff. So I'd like to thank everyone who came out. I'm, I'm grateful that, again, you give us a Saturday afternoon. Um, talking about, you know, it's it's a sacrifice. Sometimes you got to bring your kids um, and sometimes you got to leave your family at home because they're not able to make it. So I, again, I'm so grateful for everyone to show out. Thank you to Giuseppe's for hosting us. And May 20th, we're trying to figure out exactly where, but it's going to be a sort of a quasi campaign event where we get to talk to people and, uh, and uh, have fun. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. A um, little bit more normal, like I mentioned. I'll try to bring some food out. It'll just be a little bit of a party, like a traditional politics event nowadays, uh, just to get the name out. So, um, you know, thank you to Robert for being on the show. Thank you for coming to the meeting yesterday. Uh, John, as always, thank you for helping me get through those things. They're just torture on the mind and soul. But uh, like you said, it was a great meeting. We had a great turnout. Very grateful for everybody to come out. I do very much uh, just I'm blown away at the support sometimes. it's I know it can be difficult, like you said, you got baseball games and soccer matches and everything. and uh, to give me two hours on your Saturday, I appreciate it. So um that that's it for our show this week. Uh, tune in next week. We're gonna have Eddie Garcia on running for u s. Senate. And as always, peace and love. <laughs>